I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're reading Revelation chapters 20 through 22. This is the new King James Version of the podcast. The King James Version is also available. In the first 10 verses of chapter 20, we have the millennium and defeat of Satan, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up, and set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison." and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth, and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever." But well, here's the setting for yet future events, the events of chapter 20. The battle of Armageddon has been fought and won against the Antichrist at this point in time, the beast of Revelation 13. That took place in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. The tribulation period of seven years is at this point over. So at, at this point in time, Satan is bound for 1,000 years at the beginning of the millennium. We see that in verse 3. First, however, there's a resurrection of the slain tribulation saints who will reign with Christ for 1,000 years. The only biblical reference to a prophetic millennium, a thousand-year reign, is found right here in Revelation chapter 20. The bottomless pit of verse 1 is from the Greek word abyssos, which is translated into our English word abyss. For Satan, this is a temporary state. It's only a thousand years. The Greek word for nations in verse 3 is ethnos, which is used in the New Testament as a reference to non-Jewish people. We'll see the release of Satan down in verses 7 through 10. So let's take note of the following with regard to the millennium. First of all, it does not fulfill all the Old Testament messianic promises, especially the forever part that we see continually repeated over and over again in the Old Testament. Everyone starts out saved, but many do not get saved during the 1,000-year period, and they rebel down in verses 7 through 10. When the millennium ends, a new heaven, earth, and Jerusalem will be created. That's in Revelation chapters 21 and 22. We'll look at that in a few moments. 
There will be a physical temple on earth during the millennium, but not after that. Ezekiel's temple, by the way, is detailed in Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48. There is no temple in the New Jerusalem, according to Revelation 21-22. That's after the millennium is over. There will be peace under the Messiah, forced compliance, but nonetheless peaceful. The structure of verses 4 and 5 is a little confusing. The first resurrection of verse 5 is a reference to the resurrection of the people described in verse 4, the ones who lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. There's a parenthetical statement in verse 5 which says, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. And that is not a reference to the first resurrection people, but rather that refers to the people who declined salvation in Jesus Christ and are to appear before the white throne judgment of verses 11 through 15, which we'll take a look at in a few moments. Now let's take a look at the collective resurrections that take place in scriptures. First of all, first of all, the resurrection of Old Testament believers. At the resurrection of Jesus is when they resurrected, according to Matthew 27, 52 and 53. And then look at my notes on Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, where there's an article there that explains that whole process. And secondly, those saved since the resurrection of Jesus at the rapture is when they'll be resurrected. That's recorded in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, and 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 through 58. Then we have another group of resurrected people, those saved between the rapture and the second coming of Christ at the end of the tribulation. And they're right here in Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6. And finally, those who have declined to trust God by faith prior to the first incarnation of Jesus and those who have rejected Jesus as Savior since that time, and they appear at the white throne judgment recorded in Revelation 20, uh, verse 5, and also verses 11 through 15. You'll notice that the wicked dead aren't resurrected until after the millennium, according to verses 4 and 5. After this 1,000-year period, Satan is loosed only for a short time, according to verse 7, but that's long enough to gather an army of rebels who will have declined to get saved during the millennium, according to verses 8 and 9. Now let's take special note of the fact that the millennium starts out with all safe people, but this rebel force will be made up of people born during the millennium who decline a personal relationship with Christ. While they will obey under the righteous rule of the Messiah, it's not in their hearts to do so. They will only obey the Messiah out of necessity. Of course, Satan is defeated once and for all at the end of the millennium, and he's cast into his final home, the lake of fire. And that's in verse 10. So who are the people of verse 4, where it says of them, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them? Well, while we aren't told for certain, that seems like an easy call. The rapture, recorded in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15, it takes all believers to heaven where we're told in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Paul asked this rhetorical question in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. He says, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Now, I'm convinced that Paul taught that the saints, or believers, will be part of the millennial ruling team. So they're likely the ones sitting on the thrones here in verse 4. That notion is confirmed in verse 6, where it is said of them, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So there really can't be a question, but that the priesthood of the believer is a clear New Testament doctrine. Revelation 1.6 and 1 Peter 2.9 also validate that. 
Let's be clear about this very important aspect of the yet future millennium. This is the messianic kingdom prophesied by the prophets of the Old Testament. However, the Old Testament prophets actually saw two distinct periods. They saw the thousand-year millennium and the new heaven and new earth, which begins in Revelation 21.1. After the creation of the new heaven and earth, the earth will no longer be populated by unregenerate people. Everybody, all people will be God's people. However, during the millennium, there will be a growing number of descendants of the original millennium inhabitants who will decline a faith relationship with the Messiah. Nevertheless, these people will comply with the wishes of the Messiah all the way down to the end of the millennium. Well, at which time Satan will gather them as his allies in battle when he's loosed in verse 7. That event, recorded in verses 8 through 10, marks the end of all resistance against God for eternity. The existence of potential enemies during this period is not a foreign concept to the Messianic kingdom in the Old Testament in Old Testament prophecy. Isaiah described it in Isaiah chapter 54, verses 14 and 15, when he said, In righteousness you shall be established, you shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear and from terror, for it shall not come near you. Indeed, they shall surely assemble, but not because of me. Whoever assembles against you shall fall for your sake. In that passage, Isaiah references the existence of an enemy during the Messianic kingdom, but one that's not able to harm the righteous inhabitants. We see a reference to Gog and Magog in verse 8. In Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39, we see this enemy as specific countries that ally with others to attack Jerusalem during the tribulation. However, here in verse 8, they undoubtedly represent a composite of the worldwide enemies of Christ at the end of the millennium inasmuch as they are gathered from the four corners of the earth to do this battle. There's no indication in this passage that this rebellion consists of any Jews. Now, per the new covenant of Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, we can safely assume that this 1,000-year period begins that specified relationship between God and the Jewish people. Let me give you three reasons why we know this rebellion consists of just Gentiles. First of all, Israel will be living under the new covenant of Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, where all Jews will know the Lord. Secondly, the Greek word here for nations in verse 3 is ethnos. That word is used consistently in the New Testament as a reference to non-Jewish people. And then thirdly, these rebels are described in verse 8 as Gog and Magog. These are references to the Gentile enemies of God. Now notice in verse 10 that Satan will be finally cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. Uh, this is Satan's final non-resting place, and it's not climate-controlled. More company follows, seen in verses 11 through 15, as a result of the white throne judgment. As we read verses 11 through 15 of chapter 20, we see the details of the white throne judgment. Verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire, this is the second death, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire." 
Well, White Throne Judgment. Sounds pretty, doesn't it? Unfortunately, this is where the wicked dead are judged just prior to being cast into the lake of fire. The book described here is the Lamb's Book of Life, a compilation containing all who have ever been saved. This is the only basis, by the way, for going to heaven. Verse 15 says so when it says, And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So what about the books in verse 12? Obviously, from the context of verses 12 and 13, these books contain a list of the works of lost people. Well, why is that? I mean, if they're going to the lake of fire anyway for lack of having their names written in the book of life, what difference do their works make? Well, I can only offer an educated guess here, but I think there must be different degrees of punishment in the lake of fire, thus making the works of even those lost people significant. It's just a guess, though. It does seem reasonable, however, that someone like perhaps Hitler should receive more severe punishment after death than others. Incidentally, this is one of six judgments concerning mankind, and if you want to know more about those, then look at my article that's entitled The Six Judgments Found in the New Testament. There's a link here on this page of the written notes of BibleTrack.org for today, or you can find it under the topic section. Now, to lend support of the notion that the works of lost people would have some bearing on the eventual outcome, though in the lake of fire, for those present at the white throne judgment, consider Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Specifically, verses 5 and 6 in that chapter say, But in accordance with your hardness and your impotent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds." There we see that, though without Christ, their works will still have some bearing on the results of their appearance before the white throne judgment. Verse 13 lists three places of confinement for the unsaved dead, the sea, death, and hell, or Hades. This distinction would appear to be for the purpose of making certain the reader understands this to be all the dead without Christ, not to create a doctrine of three distinct holding places for the dead without Christ. No such distinction can be validated elsewhere in Scripture. It's likely that the distinction made here is related to the outcome of the event which immediately precedes the White Throne Judgment, the Gog-Magog Rebellion. There appears to be no lapse of time whatsoever between the destruction of the Gentile aggressors and their appearance before the White Throne Judgment. It makes sense, therefore, that these death and sea people are the ones who did not spend one millisecond in hell or Hades, but were transported from their point of destruction immediately to appear before Jesus for judgment. So these would have spent no time in hell or Hades. You'll notice from verse 14 that Hades is also cast into the lake of fire. If you took a look at my notes on um, Matthew 27, 52 and 53 and Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, then one of the passages that you read was Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. And here's what Jesus said there. Whereas Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Well, then and now, Hades, a.k.a. hell, is located at the center of the earth, according to Jesus. At the end of the millennium, according to verse 14, it will be removed from the heart of the earth and cast into the lake of fire. So why is that? Well, this sphere that we currently inhabit called Earth will be destroyed at the end of the millennium to make way for a new Earth. 
Now, there's some um, eternal inhabitants of the lake of fire, according to Scripture, that we need to take a look at. First, uh, in the lake of fire, living eternally there, will be the wicked Jews, according to Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. As a matter of fact, Matthew 25, 30 of that passage says, And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Not only will there be wicked Jews there, there will be wicked Gentiles and demons, according to Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. As a matter of fact, verse 41 of that passage says, Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Uh, More company there will be the presence of the beast and the false prophet. Revelation 19.20 says, Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. That, of course, is a reference to the man that's generally known as the Antichrist. Satan will also be there, according to Revelation 20.10. It says there, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then finally, all of the wicked since the creation of the world and that's per the white throne judgment that we just looked at in verses 11 through 15 of chapter 20. That brings us to Revelation chapters 21 and 22. Now, those two chapters are introduced by Revelation 21.1. That verse says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then verses 2 through 8 of chapter 21 here uh, contains an outline, really, of what's in the rest of chapter 21 and chapter 22. Uh, the uh, table, I have a table on the written notes of BibleTrack.org for today, which shows that outline. Uh, we'll just dig right in, though, with verse 1 of chapter 21. Verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away." Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Well, up through the judgment of Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, the earth referred to is the same earth that we inhabit today, the one created in the book of Genesis. At the end of that passage, though, hell, or Hades, is removed from the center of the earth and cast into the lake of fire. At that time, the wicked dead are cast directly into the lake of fire also. Revelation 21.1 tells us of a new heaven and a new earth that will be created immediately following the millennium. There are no unrighteous people whatsoever on the new earth. 
nor will there ever be from that time forward. Satan will have been permanently banished to the lake of fire, and the old creation, the old earth, will have been destroyed. Only righteousness will prevail throughout eternity. Isaiah prophesied of a new heaven and a new earth and a newly created Jerusalem. However, it's difficult, if not impossible, to see a distinct line in his prophecy between the millennium and this re-creation. He apparently saw aspects of each in the same vision in Isaiah chapter 60 and also in chapters 65 and 66 of Isaiah. In the Old Testament, conditions of the millennium and conditions of the new earth are not clearly differentiated. Let me show you three other passages with regard to the new heaven and the new earth, the first being Isaiah 65, 17. And that verse says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. And then in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 22, Isaiah says, For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name remain. And then in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, here's what Peter says, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Verse 2 speaks of a new Jerusalem. We get some detail on this holy city beginning in verse 10. This supernatural city descends from heaven and contains the bride of Christ. Jesus is, of course, the husband. All the descriptions people generally associate with heaven are really descriptions of the new Jerusalem. We're told in verse 3 that God will dwell with man from that point forward. Let's be clear. This is a physical reign over the new earth. Here's where we find the permanent messianic reign of Jesus, and only saved people will exist on the earth. Those with glorified bodies will be at home in the New Jerusalem. Verse 4 differentiates this period from any other when it says, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. We see in verses 7 and 8 that only righteous people will dwell with God from this point forward, while all others, according to verse 8, will dwell in the lake of fire. Then we see the New Jerusalem description in verses 9 through 27, beginning with verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, she had a great and high wall with twelve gates and twelve angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. The city is laid out as a square, its length is as great as its breadth, and he measured the city with the reed, twelve thousand furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall, one hundred and forty-four cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. The construction of its wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, 
the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. But I saw an old temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But they shall by no means enter in it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Well, verse 9 speaks here of the bride, the Lamb's wife. Of course, the groom is Jesus, the Lamb. The bride is a collective term referring to all of those who have trusted Jesus Christ as Savior. The New Jerusalem is a cube here, a huge cube, 1,400 miles to each side. That's a different living concept than what we're used to, one that's particularly suited to people with glorified bodies like we'll have at that time. Verse 27 tells us that only perfect people will live there, people who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, in other words, saved people. It's obvious from this passage that the Messiah, Jesus, rules from the New Jerusalem, and the believers, the bride, dwell there as well. Paul portrays the church as the bride of Christ in Ephesians 5, 25-33. In Matthew 25, verses 1-13, through we see there ten virgins. These uh, are bride attendants, Jews who enter into the millennium from the tribulation without dying. We see in verses 12-14 through that a wall surrounds the area where the city is situated. In verses 15 through 17, we see that the wall has 12 gates, each with an angel, named after the 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 foundations of the wall are named after the 12 apostles of Christ. The wall is 144 cubits high, about 216 feet. We see some interesting building materials here in verses 18 to 21. The wall around the city is made of jasper. The city is made of transparent gold, streets too, and the foundation of precious stones. The gates are made of pearls. I mean, who wouldn't want to live there? Notice a few unusual features about the New Jerusalem. No night, no sun, no moon. Jesus is the light. There's no temple there either. Ezekiel's temple in chapters 40 and 41 of Ezekiel, that's part of the old earth during the millennium, which is gone at this point in time. Sacrifices will be made at that temple during the millennium as a memorial of salvation through Jesus Christ, according to Ezekiel 43 but not on the new earth or in the new Jerusalem, according to Revelation twenty-one twenty-two. That verse says, But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. It should be noted, however, that this marks a period substantially different from that of the millennium, which precedes it. Jesus still reigns as Messiah, but there are no provisions from here to eternity for the existence of unregenerate people as there were during the millennium. This passage, along with Isaiah 65 and 66, it indicates that there will be other earth dwellers as well, according to verses 24 through 26. In addition to those who dwell in New Jerusalem, verse 27 indicates once again that there will be no unregenerate people located there either. And finally, Revelation 22, verse 1. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. 
In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Then he said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now I, John, saw and heard these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Then he said to me, See that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant, and of your brethren the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to give to every one according to his work. I am Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life, and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers, and sexually immoral, and murderers, and idolaters, and whoever loves and practices a lie. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him who hears say, Come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. The description of the New Jerusalem continues from chapter 21 in verses 1 through 5 here. From the throne proceeds a pure river of water of life. The tree of life there keeps everyone healed, and there will be no more curse on the earth. Moreover, all are in Christ. Incidentally, notice that God will provide the light for everyone. This state of perfection is eternal. John begins his closing prophecy in verse 6. We're told that John's revelation has the same authority as the prophecies of the Old Testament prophets. The imminent appearing of Jesus Christ is to be anticipated. The Greek verb for keeps there in verse 7 is tereo, which means to guard. In other words, we are to guard the book of Revelation. In verses 8 and 9, we see that John has an inclination to worship the angel messenger. The angel proclaims that only God is to be worshipped. In verse 10, John is told by the angel that this prophecy is not to be kept private. At the time of the completion of this prophecy, the spiritual state of all will remain unchanged throughout eternity. The words unjust and righteous are opposites of the same Greek root, dikaios. The word holy means set apart. In verse 12, the judgment seat of Christ is referenced. The ones who do his commandments, in verse 14, are believers. 
John defines them as such in 1 John chapter 3, verse 23, when he says, And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, as he gave his commandment. Those without, in verse 15, are the lost people. Let's take a close look at verse 16. This prophecy is directed to the churches. Jesus is the root and the offspring, meaning the uh, family, race, or kind of David. The Messianic promise through David is seen in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16. At this point in time, all will have been fulfilled. Verse 17 is an invitation to salvation for all who will trust Jesus Christ as Savior. And then a warning in verses 18 and 19. Don't mess with the contents of the book of Revelation. It is what it is, a revelation of the end that is progressively illuminated to us as we approach the end of this dispensation. As time passes, more and more of this prophecy is specifically manifested to us as we see current events fall into place. So as someone notably said, I read the end of the book and we win. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walker.